Welcome to Generation X Paranormal. I am your host, Logan Mathias. On this show, we embrace every aspect of the paranormal, all the way from bumps in the night to strange things in flight. As a member of the U.S. Armed Forces, I was all over this wonderful world. I feel like most things you see can be explained, but there are definitely a lot of those that you just cannot. With that in mind, join us and welcome to Generation X Paranormal. The body of Marianne Nichols was discovered approximately at 3.40 a.m. on Friday, 31st, August of 1888 in Bucks Row. The thing with Bucks Row that you have to, you have to imagine is when they say a row, it was, a, it was a row of housing. There is no in-between. There's no cut-through. There's no breezeway. It is just a row of housing. That's really important when it comes to, number one, the disposition of her body and what we may allude to later. Initially, she was found by Charles Cross. He was a carter, and and he would deliver goods on a horse-drawn carriage. He found her at approximately 3.40 a.m., laying in Buck's Row, on her back, and her legs were straight out, and her skirt was raised to her waist. And this is what he reports. Very shortly after Cross's discovery... There was another driver that Robert Paul wasn't really paying much attention to them. He just figured that this particular lady was passed out on the floor and or the ground. And there was a man, uh, what he would probably imagine would be a gentleman caller with her and uh, didn't pay much mind. However, Cross stood in the middle of the road and said, hey, come on over. There's a there's a situation over here. Uh, both men walk over to the body and they examine. Now, Cross touched the woman's face, which was still warm, and then her hands, which were cold. Well, they were both kind of kind of unsure what to do at the time, and Paul's idea was, well, let's go ahead and get her propped up because if she's still alive, let's get her off of the off the ground. And at that time, Cross said, "I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to touch this woman. Let's just let's just leave her where she is and how she is." And then uh, Paul said, "Well, okay. Well, if that's the case, then I'm going to go get some help." So Paul starts to leave the the area. And instead of crossing with the body, he decides to accompany him. And as they leave, they run into a constable. And this constable named Misen, he goes to them and, and says, hey, there's a, there's a lady who's either dead or something's wrong with her. And um, there's there needs to be some kind of medical attention to her. And Misen says, okay. And... At that particular time, this is interesting, Cross pulls him aside and says, there's already another PC with her. And so he didn't really ring the alarm, so to speak, because he figured, well, there's already a cop over there. So the two leave, and Misen decides to head towards uh, Buck's Row. And when he gets to Buck's Row, there was, in fact, another, another PC there, and that's how the alarm was started. Now, the disposition of the body is pretty, it's pretty rough. We're talking about... There is a large pulling of blood beneath her head when they discover her. And they also notice that her throat had been slashed all the way to the vertebrae. And I can tell you right now that that is, that is no small feat. That's, that's a lot of, of mass and muscle to get through to scrape the vertebrae. And I know this is pretty graphic, but you got to consider that that's, a, that's one heck of a, of a sharp knife to be able to do something like that. And not to mention that she had been stabbed... Uh, in the abdomen and on the side, 
But the one thing that that really strikes to mind is that there was no record of blood or anything when the two left the body. And in addition to that, they had decided to pull her skirt down together because they wanted to give her some kind of dignity. That's how the body was discovered, and that is when the alarm was sounded, and that was the first of the canonical five. So moving on to the next victim of the canonical five, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you, Nicole. Okay, so the second victim was Annie Chapman, and she was murdered in Hanbury Street of Spitalfields. I hope I said that right. Yeah, that's right. Okay, she was 47 years old when she died, and she lived at the Crossingham's Lodging House at number 35 Dorset Street. Um, she crocheted and I think sold flowers and on the side did prostitution. But she was only known for like servicing two men, basically. This um, Harry the Hawker, which is what they called him, and the other man was Ted Stanley. Um, and they, the other lodgers would call him the pensioner. But he wasn't actually a soldier or anything, what they had said. He was actually a laborer. Um, he was also a suspect because he was known to tell the, I guess the guy that owned the lodgings, Timothy Donovan, that if she ever showed up with any other men to turn her away. Mm. So he seemed jealous to me. So on September 8th of 1888, Chapman had been lacking the required money for her lodging that night. So she drank beer and left, um, had some pills, they said, in an envelope, and she got a baked potato for herself. <laughs> These are all the witness statements of, of what they saw. There's a staple dinner for you. Mm. Well, for the poor, right. that's how they stayed alive. Sure. Um, so at around 1.35 a.m., she returned to the lodging house, and then she left again to go, probably, they assumed, some prostitution so she could earn money because she told them I won't be long see that Tim keeps the bed for me so she was last seen walking in the direction of the Spitalfields market a Mrs. Elizabeth Long testified that she had seen Chapman talking with a man at 5.30 a.m. that they were standing behind the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street and she described the man as being over 40 years old a little bit taller than Chapman with dark hair and a foreign shabby genteel appearance, which I'm not sure what that means at that time period. I would think genteel would probably be like, um, like gentlemanly wearing nice clothing, maybe something of that nature, maybe. Well, he was wearing a brown low crowned felt hat and possibly a dark coat. So yeah, that would probably, yeah. So she was able to hear the man ask, Chapman, will you? And she replied, yes. So, will you mm. do me? Yes. Voila. Yeah. And that's supposedly the last time that she was seen. Mm. So, that was at 5.30 a.m. Okay. Annie Chapman's body was discovered shortly before 6 a.m. by a resident of 29 Hanbury Street named John Davis. Uh, the front door was open and the back door was shut and her body was laying on the ground near the doorway to the backyard with her head six inches from the steps. Uh, Davis alerted three men named James Green, James Kent, and Henry Holland 
and they all ran, ran down Commercial Street to find a policeman. At the corner of Hanbury Street, the men found Divisional Inspector Joseph Lunas Chandler and told him another woman has been murdered. He followed the men to her body, and he requested assistance of the police surgeon Dr. George Bagster Phillips and more officers. Uh, several policemen showed up, and they were instructed to clear the passageway to the yard so that the doctor had access. He arrived at approximately 6.30 a.m. He was quick to establish that there was a definite link between Chapman's murder and the murder of Marianne Nichols. She had also suffered two deep slash wounds to the throat inflicted from the left to the right of her neck before the murderer had mutilated her abdomen, and a blade of similar size and design had been used in both murders. He also observed that six areas of blood spattering upon the wall of the house between the steps and the wooden palings dividing 27 and 29 Hanbury Street. Some of these spatterings were 18 inches above the ground. Um, there were two pills which she had been prescribed for a lung condition. A section of a torn envelope and a small piece of frayed coarse muslin and a comb were recovered close to her body. A leather apron, partially submerged in a dish of water located close to a tap, was also discovered close to her body. So somebody had cleaned themselves up. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the press reports claim that two farthings were also found in the yard close to her body. Is a farthing money? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. I don't know how much money, but that's sure. what they used to call it. In, okay. At least in England. I don't know about other countries, but... Sorry, English, sorry my English, English, English listeners. I'm an idiot. <laughs> no, I listen to a bunch of medieval stuff, so I know oh, what the okay. farthing is. They okay. talk about it in Robin Hood, farthing. Oh, yeah, that's right. right? They did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... Um, but there's no reference made to the coins in the police records, so that could have just been made up for the press. Who knows? Gotcha. On September 13th, Dr. George Baxter Phillips described the body as he observed it at 6.30 a.m. in the backyard of the house at 29 Hansbury Street. The left arm was placed across the left breast. The legs were drawn up, the feet resting on the ground, and the knees turned outwards. The face was swollen and turned on the right side. The tongue protruded between the front teeth, but not beyond the lips. The tongue was evidently mu much swollen. The front teeth were perfect as far as the first molar, top and bottom, and very fine teeth they were. The body was terribly mutilated. The stiffness of the limbs was not marked, but was evidently commencing. He noticed that the throat was dissevered deeply, that the incision through the skin were jagged and reached right around the neck. On the wooden paling between the yard in question and the next, spears of blood corresponding to where the head of the deceased lay were to be seen. These were about 14 inches from the ground and immediately above the part where the blood from the neck lay. The instrument used at the throat and abdomen was the same. It must have been a very sharp knife with a thin, narrow blade and must have been at least 6 to 8 inches in length, probably longer. He should say that the injuries could not have been inflicted by a bayonet or a sword bayonet. They could have been done by such an instrument as a medical man used for post-mortem purposes, but the ordinary surgical cases might not contain such an instrument. Those used by the slaughtermen well ground down might have caused them. He thought the knives used by those in the leather tray would not be long enough in the blade. There were indications of anatomical knowledge. He should say that the deceased had been dead at least two hours and probably more when he first saw her, but it was right to mention that it was a fairly cool morning and that the body would be more apt to cool rapidly from its having lost a great quantity of blood. There was no evidence of a struggle having taken place. He was positive the deceased entered the yard alive. 
A handkerchief was around the throat of the deceased when he saw it early in the morning. He should say it was not tied on after the throat was cut. Wow. You know what's interesting about that? Um, Jack the Ripper wasn't always called Jack the Ripper. When it very first started out before the Canonical Five, he was actually being referred to as the Leather Apron. Hmm. And that, that, that's, I, I just remembered that. I find that very interesting. And if I'm, if I'm thinking with my be- best Dexter hat on, uh, at 14 to 16 inches, that, that's no joke. I mean, you got to figure the, whoever the assailant was, was not only obviously stabbing very, very hard, you know, to penetrate that deep, but also hard on the way out. So, I mean, had to have been mm-hmm. somebody that was just really, really pissed off or just went to town. And it's just amazing, not amazing in a, a ooh-ah sense, but just that kind of, uh, I don't know, that kind of anger, that kind of um, bloodlust. Yeah, and I mean, this next part, which is the gross part, but sure. it's it's important to, to yeah, go over it. Absolutely, but yeah. Her throat had been cut from left to right so deeply that the bones of her vertebrae column bore striations. Yeah, from the blade. Yeah, so like marks, right? And she had been disemboweled with a section of the flesh from her stomach being placed on her left shoulder and another section of skin and flesh plus her small intestines being removed and placed above her right shoulder. The morgue examination revealed that part of her uterus and bladder was missing. Good Lord. Her protruding tongue and swollen face led Dr. Phillips to believe that she may have been asphyxiated with the handkerchief around her neck before her throat was cut. God, if there's any, if there's any person with any kind of yeah. compassion, that would be accurate. <laughs> and that he, the murderer had held her chin as he performed it. As there was no blood trail leading to the yard, he was certain that she was killed where she was found. Um, I mean, there's more to about, you know, what she could have been, you know, suffering from as far as just medically um, that they have to go over as well. But that's not in, has nothing to do with her actual murder. I just, you know, which I think they they said with some of these murders, they're pretty sure that they're strangled first before they did this. And I would hope to God that. Yeah. Even though that's not a great way to go, it's no. better than the other. Um, yeah, that's, you know, that in itself, I mean, obviously, any of any murder, nothing's a great way to go. Right. You know, but if there's any there's any compassion in this world, these, these women were asphyxiated prior to that. And, I mean, to think of how violent some of these, some of these murders were, I mean, it's just... Yeah, I mean, I know it's not something we all like to talk about because it is pretty gross, but still, it's that's part of this whole uh, history. It's part of this this entire story is just how violent this was. Yeah. So for the next victim, Elizabeth Stride, it's a, it's a pretty big, um, pretty big departure from some of the disposition of the the victims prior, right? Um, she. She was still considered part of the Ripper victims because of how her throat was slashed, but there was no disembowelment. And it's really been argued for a very long time that he just, the Ripper, that is, didn't have time to do the things that he does. You know, So um, there's not a, a ton to go over with the crime scene, but 
On September 30th, PC William Smith uh, saw a stride with a man wearing a hard felt hat standing opposite an international working men's educational club. And it's a socially, it's a socialistic group. Um, so some people feel that maybe that has a connection, maybe not. But, um, but in fact, he was very well dressed. And that seems to be kind of a pretty strong parallel with every one of these victims. So, um, you know, with the exception of the first one, because nobody saw the victim with someone. But um, at any rate, uh, her body was discovered at approximately 1 a.m. on Sunday, the 30th of September on, in 1888. And what's interesting about that, she did not have the same kind of disposition. Now, she was still a working girl, as they, they would imagine, but she was a little better clothed and was in a little bit of a different area than some of the original victims, the first two anyway. Um, but from the way that it was it was expressed is that he was hurried here. So it's so far out of the norm of his normal killings that it's really tough to, to dive really deep into this because there was no, thank God, but there was no very heavily macabre scene. It was, it was a woman with her throat slashed for sure. Um, and some even will argue that she wasn't part of the canonical five, but she definitely was, just especially with the way her throat was slashed. Post-mortem, they said the body was lying near side with the face turned towards the wall, the head up up, and the feet towards the street. The left arm was extended and the right arm was over the belly and the back hand and wrist on the clot, uh, clotted blood. There's kind of already this positioning of of extremities, which is why they also think this was linked to um, to Jack the Ripper. And I think what had happened is he was about to get into the disembowelment when he was rushed. Uh, the deceased had a silk handkerchief around her neck, which is which makes that interesting because obviously she was asphyxiated. It kind of leans heavily into the fact that this was a a Jack the Ripper uh, victim. Because of the disposition of the body and because of the of the neckerchief or the handkerchief around her neck, the asphyxiation. Uh, but there was a very deep gash again, and she was cut all the way through to the to the bone again. To understand the amount of muscle, to understand the amount of of just sheer material to get to somebody's bone like that. It either spells to both a incredibly sharp instrument that they were using and just the the strength and brutality of Jack the Ripper. So we just covered Elizabeth Stride mm-hmm. and the fourth one was Catherine Eddowes. And the two of these are known as the double event right. because they basically happened one right after the other. Like 30 minutes or so, maybe an hour. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. September of 1888, she was with this John Kelly, which was just a partner. It wasn't a husband. Right. And they would do work together, and she would make money by cleaning and sewing for the Jewish community um, in the nearby Brick Lane. But she's also been known to take casual prostitution to pay her rent, which seems to be a common theme in Whitechapel. So not like an everyday gig, but when they needed extra money, it's what they would do. It's a part-time hoe. Yeah. And then (laughs) by the mid-1880s, her and 
this John Kelly also earned money by performing the hop picking mm. in the summer, which was picking hops, basically, right. for beer. And for you beer drinkers out there, you know what that is. Mm-hmm. So she would usually borrow money from her sister sometimes and try to go to relatives' houses, but she was known to drink quite often and kind of blow the money. Yeah. So in September of 1888... Um, they did their hop picking in the village of Hunton Kent. And then she, when they came back to London, they were staying in, I guess they call it a casual ward. So it's basically just in a way like a hotel or like, you know like what I a mean? Halfway house sort of. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would assume. And the owner of the place, you know, said, Oh, where'd you just come from? And she told her, you know, or him, where they had been, but she said, and you know, what brings you to the city? And she (laughs) said that she was there to claim the reward offered for the arrest of the Whitechapel murderer, adding, I think I know him. You're kidding. Yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) Wow. That is interesting. Yeah. So by the next day, um, her and John Kelly had spent almost all the money they had already earned. So they decided to split the last of their money and, you know, stay one more night in this ward house that they were, mm-hmm. they were in. I wonder if it's like a, a hostel or something like that. You know? Yeah, I would, I would imagine, you know, like more poor. Sure. And it's, it's interesting because you think about, you know, traditional ways of making money, you're out there picking hops I mean, that's, that's tough work, Yeah, <laughs> you know, as it is like picking cotton and stuff like that. I mean, it's gotta be rough on them, you know? Mm-hmm. So I guess they went down in town and, you know, pawned some stuff like he, John Kelly pawned his boots so that he could, he could go back to the hotel basically and stay the night Pawned and, his boots. Mm-hmm, so he came back barefooted <laughs> and he was there at 8 PM and, According to the person that runs the place, he remained there the whole night. He pawned his boots, and they came back. So that we know he for did, f- or he came back. Mm-hmm. She didn't. No. So we know now that this John Kelly is at the. We'll just call it a hostel for lack of better mm-hmm. words, whatever it is. And he is there the rest of the night. He's not seen again. That evening. no, he is not seen. Okay. But she. At 8.30 p.m. on Saturday, September 29th, P.C. Lewis Frederick Robinson Robinson, observed a small group of people outside number 29 Allegate High Street. When he got to the crowd, he observed Catherine Eddowes lying drunk on the pavement. Like I said earlier, she's been known to drink a lot. So he helped her to her feet and leaned her against the shutters of the house, but she just slumped back to the like immediately fell I think we've all been there <laughs> so she he summoned assistance from this PC George Simmons and they took her to the Bishopsgate police station and basically you know like to sober up right. so they put her in a cell to sober up right and when she got there she wouldn't give her name she just she gave her name as nothing as nothing yeah wouldn't tell them okay um, so shortly after 1230 a.m. On the morning of September 30th, 
She asked this PC George Hutt when she could be released, and he said, well, when you're capable of taking care of yourself. Yeah, well, you can't stumble your ass out here. Yeah, so 30 minutes later at 1 a.m., she was, you know, they said, okay, you're sober enough to be released. So he's like, all right. You know, she's like, all right, good night, old cock. That's what she said. So she's probably not a very um, (laughs) pristine woman. (laughs) Her elegance level is fairly low. yes. But before she was released, which is interesting, and why this would happen, so she must have known her, so they didn't have her down on record, or her her actual real name, she gave her name and address as Marianne Kelly of 6 Fashion Street, and Marianne Kelly is our fifth victim. You're kidding me. Huh. That's a... That is one heck of a stretch. Now... Mm -hmm. Real quick recap. She goes there with the intention of finding Jack the Ripper mm-hmm. because she thinks she knows who she is. She wants he reward is. money. Yeah, she wants reward money, which, yeah. of course. And while in the drunk tank, we'll just call it, says that gives for them the name of Marianne the Kelly, victim. who just so happens to be our next victim. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Is it? It's such a tangled web of crap. <laughs> it's just it wild. is. It's weird. All but, right. So when she left the station, instead of turning right to take the route to her lodging house where she was supposed to go, mm-hmm. she turned left to go back to this old gate where she was found <laughs> drunk. <laughs> she was last seen alive in a narrow walkway named Church Church Passage at one thirty-five a.m. So this is only 35 minutes after she was released. Wow. That's not long. So there are three witnesses who saw, saw her at that time. Okay. Okay. So they said they she was wearing a black bonnet and jacket, and she was standing talking with a man of medium build with a fair mustache at the entrance to Church Passage, which led southwest from Duke Street and into Mitre Square. She was facing the man with one hand on his chest, although not in a manner to suggest that she was resisting him. Um, he said that the man was approximately 30, about five foot seven inches in height, and wearing a loose-fitting pepper and salt color loose jacket, a gray peaked cloth cap, and a reddish neckerchief. Okay. So he thought that this guy looked like a sailor, is what he said. Interesting. He walked, so he walked right past them, so he was right up next to him. Right, yeah. Which would make, I mean,. <clears throat> if she was casually doing her <clears throat> other job, I mean, maybe she did have a little sailor fling before. I mean, we don't know, right? Well, at that point, it doesn't matter who yeah, it is. Exactly. She needs money. Exactly. Right. No, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So at 1.44 a.m., Edo's mutilated and disemboweled body was found lying on her back with her head Resting on a coal hole. Coal hole. So, didn't they used to, like, shoot coal down into the... Where they burned it and stuff? Didn't they have chutes and stuff like that? Or where they kept it for the fires or something? Yeah, I think so. Kind of like a, um, a storage area or something, maybe? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Mm-hmm. And... Turned towards the left shoulder in the southwest corner of Mitre Square by the square's beat policeman, P.C. Edward Watkins, 
approximately 14 minutes after he had previously passed through the square through the square at 1:30 a.m. Upon discovering her body, Watkins called for assistance from the night watchman at the Curly and Tongue warehouse which bordered Mitre Square. Ex-policeman George James Morris. Morris had been sweeping in the landings inside the warehouse with the door to the square open when Watkins no- knocked on the door saying, for God's sake, mate, come to my assistance. After viewing the body, he informed Watkins he had noted nothing unusual that evening. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Wow. Okay. So another watchman, um, George Clapp, and an off-duty policeman who lived at Three Miter Square, Richard Pierce, reported also having seen and heard nothing. Another policeman whose beat required his walking close to Mitre Square, P.C. James Harvey, had also walked down Church Passage from Duke Street very shortly after Watkins had first passed through the square at 1.30, although his beat took him back down Church Passage and onto Duke Street without actually entering the square. He also saw nothing out of the ordinary. He was one of the first policemen to arrive at the crime scene in response to Morse's police whistle. Another policeman to arrive in response was P.C. Holland, immediately summoned local surgeon George William Secura to the scene. Secura arrived at the scene at 1.55 a.m. Within minutes, police surgeon Frederick Gordon Brown had also arrived at the crime scene. So this is a lot going on. Yeah, it's um, a really busy crime scene. Yeah, yeah. So at approximately 2.55 a.m., a blood-stained fragment of her apron was discovered at the bottom of a common stairway at a tenement in Goulston Street, Whitechapel, by P.C. Alfred Long. This section of apron was also contaminated with sections of fecal matter, and Long was adamant the garment had not lain in the doorway when he had previously passed this location at 2.20 a.m. Hmm. Scrawled upon the wall above the section of apron was a crude chalk graffito, so graffiti, basically, the letters measuring approximately three quarters of an inch, and it says the, which it's spelled, J U W E S. But the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Oh. So like trying to make it into a hate crime or something. Sure. Yeah. Huh. Wow. That's. First of all, for it to have blood and fecal matter. Why fecal matter? Uh, that's a little perplexing. Mm-hmm. It, they took it to imply that like a Jew or a Jew in general were responsible for the series of murders. Sure. But they don't know that it was actually written by the murderer or somebody just right. <clears throat> found something and decided to, you know, use it to their benefit. Which I could see that happening. You know? Especially it's at that possible. point in time. Yeah. 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 And it was, I guess, anti-Semitic graffiti was commonplace in and around Whitechapel at the time. Yeah, unfortunately that, you know, London at that time, especially in the Whitechapel area, you know, it was it was a lot of people that were merchants that were coming in that were, you know, migrants and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So, you know, unfortunately this is kind of what we see in society. But, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. And this <laughs> doesn't make good sense because it's terrible, but someone could take advantage of the situation. So the police decided not to take pictures of it or let anyone know about it, and they actually had it washed from the wall at 5 a.m. Mm. because they didn't want to start like a anti-Semitic sure. war, I mean, basically. Aside from the contaminating 
possible evidence, but yeah, I I get it. But they they did like copy it down, right. you know, like what and they said there was a lot of grammatical errors. So it wasn't someone well educated. Or maybe it was and they were trying to pawn themselves off as dumb. I you know. Maybe who knows? but more than likely yeah, more they than were not. Especially especially in that area down. So the post-mortem records of Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown, he arrived at the crime scene shortly after 2 a.m. State that the body was on its back, the head turned to the left shoulder. The arms were by the side of the body as if they had fallen there, both palms upwards, the fingers slightly bent. A thimble was lying off the finger on the right side. The clothes were drawn up above the abdomen, and the thighs were naked. Left leg was extended in a line with the body. The abdomen was exposed. The right leg bent at the thigh and knee. The bonnet was at the back of the head. A great disfigurement of the face. The throat was cut. Across below the throat was a neckerchief. The intestines were drawn out to a large extent and placed over the right shoulder. They were smeared over with some feculent matter. So that's where... Mm, Okay. Which, ew. Yeah. A piece of about two feet was quite detached from the body and placed between the body and the left arm apparently by design. Okay. The lobe and auricle of the right ear were cut obliquely through. There was a quantity of clotted blood on the pavement on the left side of the neck around the shoulder and upper part of the arm and fluid blood-colored serum which had flowed under the neck to the right shoulder because the pavement was sloping in that direction. The body was quite warm. No death stiffening had taken place yet, so she was only dead probably within the half hour before arrival. There was no bruises, no blood on the skin of the abdomen, Um, No secretion on the thighs that would say that she was raped, you know. No spurting of blood on the bricks or pavement. No marks of blood below the middle of the body. Several buttons were found in the clotted blood after the body was removed. There was no blood on the front of the clothes. There were no traces of recent connection. And it's interesting because with these victims, they all have what appears to have been asphyxiated prior to mm-hmm. all this going on. So there wouldn't be a ton of blood spray because no. there's no pressure built up in the body. Right. So after washing the left hand carefully, a bruise the size of a sixpence recent and red was discovered on the back of the left hand between the thumb and first finger. A few small bruises on the right shin were of an older date. So it didn't happen from that. The hands and arms were bronzed. No bruises on the scalp, the back of the body, or the elbows. The face was very mutilated. There was a cut about a quarter of an inch through the lower left eyelid, dividing the structures completely through. The upper eyelid on that side, there was a scratch through the skin on the left upper eyelid near to the angle of the nose. The right eyelid was cut through to about half an inch. There was a deep cut over the bridge of the nose extending from the left border of the nasal bone, down near the angle of the jaw on the right side of the cheek. This cut went into the bone and divided all the structures of the cheek except the mucous membrane of the mouth. The tip of the nose was quite detached by a cut from the bottom of the nasal bone to where the wings of the nose join onto the face. A cut from this divided the upper lip and extended through the substance of the gum over the right upper lateral incisor tooth. 
There was on each side of a cheek a cut which peeled up the skin, forming a triangular flap about an inch and a half. On the left cheek, there were two abrasions of the epithelium under the left ear. The cause of death was hemorrhage from the left common carotid artery. The death was immediate, and the mutilations were inflicted after death. There would not be but much blood on the murderer. The cut was made by someone on the right side of the body, kneeling below the middle of the body. I mean, it just goes on and on right. and on. Yeah. yeah we'll, save, we'll save everybody yeah, from it, the, the deep I mean, because... We got that coming up. He had to have a lot of time. Yeah, he had, obviously one. had time. And <clears throat> when I when when you look at that one, to me, that brutality, mm-hmm. we really hadn't seen that prior. Now we've seen the disembowelment. We had seen the, you know, just how deep the cuts to the neck were, but nothing of this magnitude. To me, it's like with uh, with the previous victim, he was rushed, mm-hmm. right? So he's pissed. Mm-hmm. He's good and pissed. And from from my understanding, it's a good ten minute walk or so from the last victim to this victim. Mm-hmm. So he's stirring that whole time. You know, he's probably mfing this and these mother effins, and you know, he's pissed. Mm-hmm. So when he gets to gets to her, he is charged up. Mm-hmm. He is ready to take it out on her, and it shows. I mean, that level of mutilation. I mean, good lord. I mean, you know, and and folks, if you want to look this up, there are pictures of of her yeah. of her body, and it's it's awful. It is awful. Um, if you're a little weak of stomach, I would not do that. <laughs> but um, yeah, just to me, it it doesn't spell somebody who was who was of good frame of mind. I mean, who would be in a good frame of mind? But he was so angry, and that's he took it out on her. Yeah, and I mean, even the the doctor was like looking at the body he said it gave no evidence of anatomical knowledge in the sense that it evidenced the hand of a qualified surgeon he concurred that the perpetrator may have held the degree of knowledge expected of a butcher or a slaughterman which we'll get to later so it's important to to say that Um, he said that the first doctor at the crime of the scene and uh Medical officer William Sedgwick Saunders, who was also present at the autopsy, said that the killer lacked anatomical skill and did not seek particular organs. So it was just like a frenzy, sure. basically. He's best. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well, that uh, that is unnerving. Yeah. But, however, as unnerving as it was, it is not in pales and... Very large comparison to how unnerving the last victim was. Um, And we're going to cover that one together because there's just so much in there. Um, We had mentioned all of these have been on the road so far. So it's happened on roads and, and, you know, backyards. So it's all been under an open sky. And if you understand that time frame... The Whitechapel area was heavily patrolled by cops mm-hmm. because it was a, it was a bad area. It was a slum. It was a slum. So they're moving around. He's got to, you know, he's getting pissed because they're interrupting him. And he he has moved on. He mm-hmm. is evolving as a predator. So now he decides, well, I don't want to be on the road anymore. So we're going to go indoors. Mm-hmm. And indoors he did go. We were, of course, referring to the last canonical victim. Mary Jane Kelly. 
And as we know with serial killers, each one, they go further and further with the way that they kill. Yeah, and we'll get into some of the detail because we kind of have to. It's it's important to what happened. But, folks, if, if you are, again, if you're weak of stomach, don't look it up. But you, there are pictures. Um, and I don't know if they're actual pictures or if it's somebody who drew it. But no, no, there there is pictures. Well, they did have photography. Yeah, they did it's have just photography. like the old black and white. Sure. Nothing's very clear. Right. Thankfully. Yeah, not for this one. So, Marianne Kelly. So, we mentioned that this is now moved indoors. And as you would imagine, that afforded a lot of time for our assailant. So on the morning of 9th of November of 1888, uh, Kelly's landlord, John McCarthy, sent his assistant, he was an ex-soldier, Thomas Boyer, to collect the rent. Apparently, Kelly was six weeks behind on her payments, and I guess he owed, her, owed him 29 shillings. So shortly after 10.15 a.m., Bauer knocked on the door but received no response. He then attempted to turn the handle, and he only discovered, of course, it was locked. Bauer then, or Boyer, I think it's Boyer. Boyer then locked or looked through the keyhole, but could not see anybody in the room. And apparently, there was a hole in one of the panes of the glass, uh, but it was covered up by some clothing. So he pushed it aside, and he peered in the room, and of course, he discovered the extensive mutilated corpse laying on a bed. She is believed to have died between three and nine hours before the discovery of her body. Okay. Boyer then ran to report this to McCarthy, which is odd to me because I would have first gone to the police. But mm-hmm. instead he decided to go to his boss. Um, and of course, uh, he was instructed to go to the Commercial Street Police Station, and that's what he did. So he went there and reported, and his exact words when he went in there, he said, Another one, Jack the Ripper awful McCarthy sent me he said that's the inspector and the inspector was Walter Beck so Beck accompanied him back to Miller's court which is where this happened and of course you know what they found right Um, so basically how it goes is they immediately requested for assistance from the uh, police surgeon George Baxter Phillips and he also gave orders preventing any individuals from entering or exiting the yard. So basically, he locks down the whole area, which is what you would expect somebody to do. And he also arranged for the news of the murders to be telegraphed to Scotland Yard. Now we got the big boys coming in, right? And he requested the assistance of the bloodhounds. The scene was attended by Superintendent Thomas Arnold, and the inspector was Edmund Reed. Wasn't Edmund Reed the guy in, uh, was it uh, Ripper Street? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So he remembered something. So anyway, um, he was in Whitechapel's H Division, as well as Frederick Aberlein, who was also in Ripper Street. Um, okay, so they were from Scotland Yard. So they arrive on the scene anywhere from, I think, between 1, or I'm sorry, 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. And news of discovery of this victim spread really fast, as you would imagine, on East End. Uh, crowds estimated over, I think, a 1,000 gathered on Dorset Street. And many of the members of public were voicing their frustration and indignation of the news. So, you gotta figure, there's been a whole slew of murders, right? And even two in one night. So these people are, are scared. They don't know what's going on. And now apparently there's this other victim. So they're pissed. 
So they're gathering around kind of kind of in a protest style to the to them saying, hey, this is this is unacceptable. Right. So anyway, long story short, they locked down the scene. They got people in there. They're taking pictures. And now we're going to go into a little bit of the disposition of the body. So getting into the postmortem again, as I want you to understand, this is pretty brutal and I only feel it's important to go over some of these details because it, it gives you an idea of how absolutely, well, I'm just going to say psychotic of a killer he was, but any rate, <clears throat> so Thomas Bond and George Baxter Phillips examined the body. Phillips and Bond timed her death about 12 hours before the examination. Uh, Phillips suggested that the extent of mutilations would have taken two hours to perform. That's a long time. Uh, Bond noticed that the rigor mortis had set in when they were examining it, indicating the death occurred roughly between 2 a.m. and 8 a.m. Bond's official document pertaining to his examination and the overall subsequent postmortem state is as follows. The body was lying naked in the middle of the bed. The shoulders flat, but the axis of the body inclined to the left side of the bed. The head was turned to the left cheek. The arm was close to the body with the forearm flexed at the right angle and lying across the abdomen. The right arm was slightly abducted from the body and rested on the mattress. The elbow was bent, the forearm supine, and the fingers clenched. The legs were wide apart and left thigh right angles at the trunk and the right forming obtuse angle with the pubis. So basically she's laying on her back and her legs are manipulated so that her knees are up and kind of um, kind of resting open. Mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> the whole surface of the abdomen and thighs removed and the abdominal cavity emptied to its viscera. Um, the breasts were cut off and the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds and the face hacked behind beyond recognition of the features. Once again, the brutality of the face again. Uh, the tissues of the neck were severed all around to the bone. Uh, the viscera was found uh, in various parts of the uterus and the kidneys with one breast under the bed or under the head, the other breast by the right foot, the liver between the feet, the intestines by the right side of the spleen. I'm sorry, the, the intestines and the right side spleen by the left side of the body. The flaps removed from the abdomen and thighs were on the table. The bed and clothing at the corner were saturated with blood, and the floor beneath the body was pulling up about two square feet. So that's a lot of blood. So the wall on the right of the side of the bed with a line was aligned with the neck was marked with blood which had struck in several places. So once again, you know, Dexter style. The face was gashed in all directions. The nose, cheeks, eyebrows, and ears were, partial, were partially removed. Uh, the lips were blanched and cut in several incisions. I'm not sure I know what that means, but obviously it had been cut pretty severely. Down to the chin, actually. Uh, there were also numerous cuts extending irregularly across the, the uh, features. Uh, the neck was cut through the skin, um, down to the vertebrae, of course. And the neck was showing distinct ecchymosis, which is basically... a of saying, you know, bruising. Uh, the larynx was cut through to the carotid cartilage. 
And both breasts, as we mentioned, were more or less removed with incisions. So again, I won't go too much further into this because I think you're getting a pretty good picture of the overall scene of the, of the murder. So she is completely mutilated. Her entire body is destroyed. Her face is destroyed. Um, there are parts of her that are cut. I mean, this is as gruesome of a scene as it sounds to see. So we have moved from quick murders to now we have had a very long time with the victim. So with that, I think it's important to kind of talk about a few of the things that, that weren't associated with the body. Um, Nicole, what was the, what was the situation with the, the candle? So I guess she had bought a candle in November. It was just a single candle, so the the room was very dimly lit. Okay. But they found, like, a huge fire, and it had been fueled by women's clothing, so probably her clothing and, who knows, past victims' clothing, whatever. Sure. But they thought it was because he wouldn't be able to see to do his work, so he lit a huge fire so that he was able to see what he was doing gotcha well and moving on which i find interesting because phillips believed that kelly had been killed by a slash to the throat and all the mutilations were performed afterwards so we we now know that all the victims up to this point did not have to quote unquote live through the mutilation at least that's what we suspect okay but what I find incredibly interesting is that he also states, and this is quote, in each case, the mutilation was inflicted by a person who had no scientific or anatomical knowledge. In my opinion, he does not even purpose. He does not even possess the technical knowledge of a butcher or a horse slaughterer or a person accustomed to cut up dead animals. Hmm. So. Again, uh, the crime scene's available online if, if you really want to delve into it. And I kind of want to break away from the macabre and talk a little bit about... Unless Did you want to add anything to Mary Kelly? No. So kind of breaking away from the macabre, um, only because, one, I think we get a pretty fair depiction of the canonical five. And I think we, we understand basically what's happening at that point. So we talked about... We're going to focus a little bit on the paranormal part of this. Um, and this will do with the, with the ghosts of, of the five canonical five. The five canonical five. The five. Okay, so the ghost of Mary Ann Pauly Nichols was the first victim. Um, basically, what, they, what people notice is that every so often on Doward Street, they see a hidden fi huddled figure uh, woman laying down in the same area in which she was killed. And this is reported by quite a few people. So this is a very normal occurrence. So if you're in that area, um, from what I understand, this is this happens pretty regularly. So, and, and of all the places that all the murders happen, this happens to be an area that was, now granted it's been, it's been renovated since then, but the, the street is pretty much the same. Nothing's really been altered. So, it would make sense that this would happen regularly if if you believe in that. Um, and I think this is probably more what we would consider a residual haunting. Because mm -hmm. I don't think there's really any 
active part of it. Um, but that is the ghost of Pollyann Nichols. Um, we'll move on to the ghost of Elizabeth Stride. So the ghost of Elizabeth Stride is an interesting one, too. <clears throat> so, of course, that happened on the 30th of September, the night of the double murder, and the Ripper murdered two women. The first woman, of course, Elizabeth Stride, was not mutilated, as the murderer was probably disturbed, as we talked about, and is believed the reason why he did not mutilate her. Um, but um, she did let out a scream, but nobody came to help her. And one of the one of the paranormal things that they hear is a disembodied woman scream, um, and that can be heard on Burner Street. So that's probably a pretty unnerving thing to hear just kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Um, the ghost of Catherine Eddowes. That, this one's also kind of interesting because um, she was mutilated. And the area that this happened, which is Miter Street, it's called Ripper Corner, which is just a terrible thing to say. And it's changed quite a bit. But um, apparently... If you dare to visit Mitre Square in the dark of September night, I'm quoting here, you might catch a glimpse of a spectral figure laying on that very spot that she was killed. And if you go there at night, uh, the night of her death, you might see the corner where she died glow red. That'd be pretty interesting. You know, okay, I, I, I buy the, the whole, you know, you were murdered in this particular area, so it's, you're going to have some connectivity to it, but I'm not sure I understand what the glowing red is. I find that interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, with all of them, I mean, you know the city of London. They know these stories very well. There's tours, all this stuff. Is this just people wanting to see stuff? Yeah. I don't know. Well, and that, and having said that, you're right, because they offer tours of this. So yeah. you can go right now to London, book mm -hmm. a tour, and they take you to all these different sites. So, yeah, I mean, there's you got to take the that with a grain of salt. Right. And like, I sell tickets. Yeah. Well, and with each one of these, every single victim, every single one of them has a story where they're seen in the spot that they died. We know as watching, you know, paranormal stuff and investigating it and, and talking about it, that you're not just going to be a ghost for every single thing, every murder that's happened. Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, were they all traumatic? Absolutely. But the probability of all five of them appearing where they died is very, very low. Yeah, I could see even, one or two. Sure. Yeah, maybe. But I think it's more of a, I want to see this. <laughs> right. You know what I so mean? So they fabricated, you think. And all that stuff. Well, I mean, I mean as it's far definitely as like, the most unsolved murder right, that they've had. So. Right. I mean, it's a big thing that people go to do. Sure. And, you know, when you do these ghost tours, because we've been on several. Mm-hmm. They, they like to tell you everything right. that people tell them. And you can tell which ones are probably like, eh. Yeah. Or ones that they fabricate just to try to make the tour interesting. Mm -hmm. And what is actually probably reality. I've always found that the ones that are more grandiose are the ones that I typically go, eh, you know? Yeah, yeah. But uh, the ghost of Mary Jane Kelly, apparently um, during the months following her murder... Her ghost could be seen entering Miller's court. And the strange aspect to her murder is that several witnesses claim to have seen and spoken to Mary Kelly on the morning of November 9th, when the fact that she may have already been murdered. 
See, so they, that one I find more. Yeah. Just yeah. because, well, and look what happened to her compared to the others. I mean, they, the rest of them were, you know, torn apart, but she was really, you know, and he took his time with her and, and he slashed her throat, whereas the others, he kind of just choked him to death, yeah. which I'm not saying one's worse than the other. No, I mean, it's all awful. Yeah. But you know what I mean? He was probably a lot more violent with her than he was the others because he knew he was an enclosed space where he could get away with it. He had all the time in the world. Yeah. He went as fast as he could out on the street because he had, you know, time was of the essence then. Yeah. And that's that's sort of where that kind of ends because Mary Jane Kelly was the crescendo. That was his... I mean, I hate to say it this way, but that was his masterpiece. I mean, that sounds terrible, but that was like the thing everything had been building up to. Mm -hmm. You know, he had been rushed through some. uh, He had his first couple killings. um, And then there are... Listen, these are not the only victims that people are trying to put on Jack the Ripper. I think there's up to like 11. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of that is true because... It just doesn't match up with some of this. And it looks like everything just kind of built up to the Mary Jane Kelly killer. True, but I also, with serial killers, they don't stop. Right. They stop if they get caught and go to prison or they die or they just move and they go somewhere else and start it all over again. But they don't just stop. And that's what I find weird because they don't ever hit their masterpiece usually. Right. You know, they... Even, you know, serial killers that have been interviewed, they they have the urge. They say they try to fight it, and they can fight it for months, years, but then it comes back, and they have to do it again. Like, they they have to do it. True. So, we don't even know if that were the last ones. We don't. I mean, that's just in sequence to each other. Yeah. That's the last one. It's time we focus a little bit on who some of the suspects are. They spent so much trying, time trying to figure out who Jack the Ripper was that there's no way we could focus on that. Right. And he had to be somebody that blended in because he had to be able on those streets where there's no alleyways to, to escape. He had to be able to get out of there and not cause any suspicion. He probably walked by a ton of those cops yeah. and they, because if he's dressed like everybody else, like a gentleman and he's not, you know, run, running around with blood all over him. There is one that to me really just sort of stands out. You know, it's the one that, that just recently was one that was revealed to me. So, you know, a little truth in advertising. You know, we do some research prior to this. Um, I'm the one that did the research for this one, so it's probably not as good as it's the one Nicole usually does research for. There's a Smithsonian uh, Channel documentary about this, and they do a very good job of explaining the the suspect in which we're about to reveal. But do you remember the very, very, very first victim? She was on a road that it's a street yeah it's a street just imagine a row of houses on both sides there's no no way to get on the other side unless you go through the front door and then through a back door i mean you have to go down the whole street to get to the other side that's what i was trying to get to (laughs) (laughs) anyway um it is a it is probably the most important murder they're all important they're all awful they're they are part of the jack the ripper lore This one is the one that gets overlooked. And sadly, I think this is the one where we find the actual killer. Yeah. We had mentioned that um, the very first person 
to show up at the uh, at the site where Marianne Nichols was, this Cross guy, right? That's where things get a little interesting. So Charles Cross, he he was there first before uh, was it Robert Paul, Richard Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the first one to arrive. Nobody knows exactly what time he arrived. Nobody. He says he got there at three forty. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows that for sure. His job would get him from, because he gave his address. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, he gave his name as Charles Cross at the Inquisition. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. But that's not his name. It turns out his name is Charles Allen Lechmere. He gave a false name, which is at an Inquisition. And at that time, that's not something that you did. You know, it, it's very or important. at any time. Right, at any time. But especially back then, they were... They were always worried and you always wanted to give accurate information because they would find out. So he says his name is Charles Allen Cross, but his real name is Charles Allen Lechmere. And from his apartment where he lived, he would walk to his job all the way to the other end of the White Chapel. And guess what he did for a living? He was a carter, like we said, and he delivered things at night. What he delivered was meat mm-hmm. so this man worked for a meat company and it wasn't like he was you know delivering a couple slices of veal to the local person no, this man was delivering large amounts of beef mm-hmm. and would be seen this guy shows up and they he says he gets there at 340 and it would have taken him roughly about seven minutes to get from his door to where where the body lie right yeah However, there was somebody else who left at the same time, and that was this Richard Paul. Mm-hmm. And he lived basically in the same area. They would have left at exactly the same time because this man was running late, and he was watching his clock. So he was, he was he trying to make... what the time was. Yeah, he knew exactly what time it was. So here's this guy taking off down the road. It would have only taken roughly seven minutes to get from door to murder scene. Apparently, this man would have had a lot more time with that body than... What he said. What he said. It would have, he would have had almost 10 minutes, right? What's important about that is neither gentleman said that they saw each other as they were walking to the murder site. If they left at the same time and got there roughly at the same time, they would have seen each other. Yeah. That's not what they report. Here we've got uh, Lechmere standing at this body, and you've got Paul coming up you know, roughly behind him. And obviously, we already stated there's one way, or you're, you know, there's two ways in and out. Mm-hmm. You're going to see that person walking. Well, right. he could have heard him is what they were saying right. because of the type of shoes that they wore right. were loud, yeah. you know, smacking. So he would have had time to do things right. and hide himself. He basically said that he didn't see him till he got right up on the body yeah. like he came out of the shadows. Yeah. And that's the interesting part because mm-hmm. he would have seen him. Yeah. So we've got a, I think a, anywhere from about five minutes, six minutes of time there. What they do a really good job in this show is they have a forensic scientist breaking it down. The type of wounds that were given to Marianne Nichols, as extensive as they were, um, could have been done roughly two minutes. Mm-hmm. And that still gives a whole lot of time. Yeah. The argument is Lechmere could have gotten there earlier, mm-hmm. done his thing. Choked her out. Choked her out. Still had plenty of time to, you know, unfortunately take her life by cutting her throat, doing the multiple stabbings, 
place the body. And while he's doing this, he knows that other guy's coming. Mm-hmm. He can see him. So you know he's trying to hurry up. He's getting it set up. He he still knows that the body is laying down. The, her blouse is still up. But it, it it's just one of those things where he's kind of trying to hurry and put her down. So this guy, Paul, comes up. And he looks and he goes, oh, crap, what's going on? So when he gets there, he checks Marianne and he says that he could sense a small breath. I don't think that's accurate. No, but but he couldn't tell anything else because didn't they say that he'd pulled the shirt down over the abdomen? Because didn't he stab her in the abdomen? Yes, he he pulled the shirt down. Pulled the shirt down, right. And he didn't see any blood. So he assumed, like, you know, I guess there's a lot of passed out drunk people right. or someone asleep in that area he that's what he assumed because he didn't see any pooling of blood there were no marks on her the guy didn't have any blood on him Mm-mm. and what they explained is that you know she were already dead and he cut the blood pressure is not there to make the blood spurt so right. it would have just kind of leaked out right and what's more important about that is it is so fresh that it hadn't started pulling yet right so he got he came upon him within the first two minutes, probably. Yeah. I mean, after. maybe there was faint breath, but by the time, you know, yeah. who knows? Yeah. Well, what's interesting about that is we had mentioned in the very beginning of the show that they decide, well, they don't decide, they leave together. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that is we now have potentially the killer with another witness leaving the scene. Now, I'd mentioned there were cops all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. It is much easier to see two men walking out of that that uh, street to report this than one person. Right. They can corroborate somewhat the story. Mm-hmm. So we now have potentially Jack the Ripper leaving with this, this Paul guy. And they come across another uh, constable. And they say, hey, constable, there is a person you know, either passed out or drunk or whatever. Um, but she's in need of medical attention. Right. Mm-hmm. And in a very astute way, we'll just say the Jack, the Ripper, <laughs> we shouldn't say that, but uh, like pulls the constable aside is there's already a cop there, which that is incredibly important because had he not had said that number one, that constable would have raised the alarm. Mm hmm. But he figured, well, there's already somebody there, so I don't have to do that. So that's number one. Right. Number two, if there was no constable there, he would have sure as heck taken those two back to the body because he wouldn't know at that time if potentially one of them was the murderer. Right. So, and they were very astute back then. They were smart cops. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying the ones today aren't, but I'm just saying they didn't have the the technology that we have now to... Just to, because it was the 1800s doesn't right. mean that they didn't know what they were doing. Exactly. It had to be on point because they didn't have some of the stuff that we enjoy mm-hmm. today. So, that doesn't happen. And that's really important because there's so much time in between that. And, of course, Lechmere and Paul, they leave. Now, uh, this constable goes there and finds out that, in fact, there was a cop there. And that is just sheer chance. Mm-hmm. Because this other constable happened to be on his beat and discovers the body. Now, when he gets there, the body's changed. Mm-hmm. There is blood. blood pooling underneath the neck. Mm-hmm. And 
they had decided to pull her, uh, I should say Paul and Lechmere had decided to pull her skirt all the way down. So now we've got blood pulling. We've got um, an obvious murder scene. It's not anymore where Paul thinks it's somebody drunk off their butt and needs some medical attention. Right. Now, if that wasn't the only thing, because it's not, that's a lot to go on. Right. But what's more important is if you were to, and again, they do this really well in that show, and I urge you guys to watch it, but they they do a really good graph of showing how his path to get to work, even an alternate path, mm-hmm. both paths to get to his work, they absolutely hit every single murder with the exception of one. Yeah. So what is also interesting about that is the timing of the murder. So he would have left his house super early, what, 3.30, I think is what they said, roughly 3.30 a.m. Anyway, real early in the morning, he would basically hit every single murder site, not just the path, but at the time of their killings. Mm-hmm. So let's say... Well, he would at least have been working. Right, he'd have been working, but more importantly, as he was walking, he would have legitimately hit every mm-hmm. single murder in path canonically. <laughs> he would have hit every one of them and he would have been on scene every single time these murders happened. And I love whoever the guy says, either this guy was the murderer. He was the most unlucky man in London at that time. Right. So what's interesting is it puts him pretty much every single one of them. And this all can be corroborated because they know where he lived. Mm-hmm. They know what time he had to be to work and they knew his paths. Now, the only one that does not make sense, that's a little out of it, can also be explained. You see, <clears throat> Lechmere worked Monday through Friday. I think Sunday as well. His only day off was Saturday. When was Elizabeth Stride's murder? And the other one, the two, was on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. So, I know that's kind of a, an out there scenario, but picture this. His mom and one of his daughters lived around the corner of where Elizabeth Stride was murdered on his day off. Convenient. Very convenient. And then, of course, um, all the rest of them were on his route. So, look, is it the smoking gun? No. Are we ever going to know for sure? No. Because, unfortunately, whatever little evidence we have... I mean, we're never going to find out. And all the great evidence, unfortunately, was destroyed in the Blitz. Thanks, Nazis. So, you know, we're never going to know for sure. But I just, this particular person has so much going for him in the sense that he was at each location. But more important than that, he worked for a meat company. Mm-hmm. He had access to, to probably the oh, most sharpest instruments out right. there. I mean... And it would not be uncommon for him to be seen wearing bloody clothing. That's what they said. It was very common. It's very common. Now, it doesn't necessarily make a big deal for the first four, you know, because there wasn't a ton of blood. But it makes a hell of a lot of difference for Marianne Kelly. Mm -hmm. Because there is no way that a transfer of blood did not happen between that victim and that killer. Oh, no way. So if he walks out of there, Miller Square... And he's got blood on him. 
It's not that big of a deal. There, you just worn his work clothes. Right, he just worn his work clothes. Got to work, went into the uh, the facility, the stable, stable, mm-hmm. and cleaned himself up. Got rid of the evidence because they said they had washing things in right. there or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They had washing Where they stations. Clean up. Mm-hmm. You bet you clean right up, and nobody would have batted an eye because blood would have been normal. It was convenient. Well, I mean, again, we're never going to know for sure. No, but, but it, what was interesting on the, you know, the documentary, the reason he gave the name Cross was because they went back through old historical records, you know, and they would always do the census of who lived in the home. He had a stepdad for a time by the last name of Cross. Right. So he used that with the police. Yep. So he kept his first and his middle name. He just changed the last name. That's something. And they couldn't match that to the address. But he was known as that for a short time period when he was a kid. He sure was. But that wasn't his actual name. And they tracked him. And it's interesting. And we'll put this on the Facebook um, if we can find a copy of the picture. But in, ni- what was it? They said 1912. He, 1912 or They something. think he became fairly wealthy. He had a family and had, what, 12 kids or something like that. Um, they've got a picture of him. Yeah. So we may have, have a, a picture of Jack the of Ripper. Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. But and what made him stop? That's my, still my curiosity of why he stopped. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he fell into fortune. I mean, we know that he started making money. What's that have to do with an urge like that, though? Who knows? I don't know. But we'd love to know your opinion, guys. I mean, if if you have thoughts, you know, Facebook, you can reach us there. You can reach us at our website. Um, but we'd love to hear what you guys think. And of course, you can reach us at gxparanormal.com. That's our website. And our Facebook is called Generation X Paranormal Podcast. Yeah. Oh, we, that's a joke, guys, because I messed that up a couple of, a couple of episodes ago. So <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll see you then. We're also on YouTube and uh, we'll catch you guys later.